Welcome back to another episode of Avalanche and Anglican. I'm here with Adam, Daryl, and today we're going to be talking about the Nicene Fathers, which is, what is it, Father Daryl? Like, what time period would you say would that cover through? So the Council of Nicaea is in 325 AD. Okay. And when we're talking about the Nicene Fathers, we're referring to those people that were specifically at that council. So we're talking a couple decades prior and then several decades after. Okay. And obviously, we literally just did last week on the Nicene Fathers, anti-Nicene Fathers, and now we're doing Nicene Fathers. So something important. If I was a guessing man, I would say something important is about to happen at the Council of Nicaea, like you just mentioned. We literally have a whole time period of... Yeah. Yeah. So there's a huge event that happens in 311. And then another huge event in 313. This is when Constantine becomes the emperor. Uh, the church tradition tells us that he had a vision of a cross in the sky and told his, his men to paint that symbol on their shields when they went into battle, you know, through the sign you'll conquer. Well, in 313, we get his edict with his co-emperor making Christianity legal. So when you get to the council of three, in 325, the council of Nicaea, there are bishops at that council who had been in prison, not martyred, obviously, because they're alive, but they were suffering terribly. The religion is made legal, and then they're summoned by the emperor to a world council. That's what uh, ecumenical means, global, worldwide. I think it's just kind of crazy because I don't know if people know about that aspect of Christianity was illegal even when, like, that short period of time when it was existing. Yeah. Like, not short period of time existing, but, like, that short period of time where it started and then it became illegal, which is pretty radical. If you think so, about yeah, it. so uh, the Jews in the first century, in the time of Christ and the writing of the New Testament, they were a... Um, Licit. They they were they were a licit religion. So Rome permitted them to not actively engage in emperor worship because they knew they were strict monotheists. So Rome gave them permission to exist as monotheists as long as they paid their taxes, right? And Christianity, the early church, the early Christians were considered part of Judaism until the seventy A.D. when the temple is thrown down, and then the Council of Jamnia uh, that was amongst the Jews in about 90 AD when they specifically stated that if anyone says, you know, Christ, Jesus is the Christ, he was excommunicated from the synagogues. And so in the same way that you see the, the Jews following Paul around in the book of Acts to get him stoned and persecuted in the cities by the government, they do the same thing to the church, uh, the early church, after the fall of the temple. Rome sees a distinguishing characteristics between Christianity and Judaism, because the Christians wouldn't fight to preserve the temple, and also because of the Jews saying they're not really Jewish anymore, they're something different. And so then Christianity becomes illegal. And we see this in, uh, like, the Shepherd of Hermas, the latter part of the one hundred, uh, John's prophecies, you know, there in, in the Revelation, we see that it's not legal. Those anti-Nicene fathers that we, we talked a good bit about, those guys are theological juggernauts who hold the line. If they hadn't stood for truth and, and the claims of the gospel in the midst of the rising heresies, and, you know, at pain of their life, like we mentioned Cyprian last week, he's martyred. We mentioned Hippolytus. He was a disciple of Irenaeus. He's martyred. 
I mean, I think, if I remember correctly, all of the bishops of Rome, except for two, up until Christianity is legalized, died as martyrs. Wow. It was, it was a costly thing, costly thing to be in the church then. Yeah, and I think that, that persecution um, was part of the development of the theology at the time, especially you mentioned Cyprian. You look at a lot of the issues that he was dealing with and the people that he was talking to, many of the controversies of his arguments was because he was being sought out. Yeah. The government was actively trying to kill him. And many of his writings, uh, I think he writes something, 65, almost 70 letters. And, and those letters, a lot of them are dealing with ideas because he's in hiding and he's in persecution. So you look he at- He took some flack for that, by the way. 100%. Yeah, they, they, he got some significant critique for fleeing in the first wave of persecution. And he was encouraged to do so, by the way, to, to flee. But then when they came back around the second time, he stayed and was, let's see, was he, I think he was martyred wearing his Dalmatic, like the clothing of a deacon. Yes, uh, I, I, I believe you're right. Uh, the other thing is not only was there issues with him doing those things, but I would say reading from that and the issues that he's addressing, it was the catalyst. It was the reason why he was dealing with different issues, uh, such as who can baptize, who can perform the, the Eucharist. Who has authority? Who can give someone authority? It's all because he's absent and the people are getting antsy. That's part of what's going on. Yeah, definitely part of what's going on. Well, when we talk about this time period, I know I don't know much about church history. I'm still learning about it, especially being new to looking at the whole church, like all through traditions and everything. But the one thing I knew beforehand was the Council of Nicaea. <laughs> and that was because I knew, I'm like, that's a big one. That's where a lot of stuff started getting established. And, and during this time period, we start seeing a lot of uniformity as a church. I mean, it was always one, but now we get to see some structure being implemented that's going to be lasting for a while. Yeah, what we start to see, and there are typically, you know, historians tend to agree on the number of what are called ecumenical councils. And Nicaea is the first one. You could argue scripturally, Acts 15 is the first one, but the ecumenical councils after the age of the apostles, this is the first. And the issues that are developing in the ones and two hundreds kind of come to a head so that we end up with a presbyter, a priest named Arius in Alexandria, Egypt, who's teaching that Jesus is created. And we see in his letters... Sozimus, one of the church historians, preserves a lot of these letters from the Arians, the back and forth. You know, we see their theological method. Scripture teaches X, Y, and Z, whatever their claim is. The fathers before us taught X, Y, and Z. Therefore, that method of theologizing is used both by the heretics and the church Catholic. And it's important because if there's that methodology has been neglected by many contemporary uh, leaders and just pew sitters uh, today. Well, the Bible told me, or the Holy Spirit told me, no reflection on what the Spirit has said in history. What we see with Nicaea is, and this pattern is going to be replicated through the rest of the councils and, and on out through Christian history. The idea is not to innovate. The idea with the council is to sum up what the church has been saying in the past. So, for example, it's not at the Council of Nicaea they decide to create bishops, priests, and deacons. Nope. What they do are set down certain parameters for them. For example, uh, you have the creed that's drafted, 
But then you also have the canons or the rules that they pass or resolutions that they pass that the whole church abides by. For example, if you are ordained as a priest in a diocese, you leave, you stay there. You don't leave. You don't go from one church to another. It's not like you take a church, you get elected to first church when you're 25 years old and there's 30 people there, and you grow it to 130, and when you're 40 years old, you get a phone call from the denomination and they want to move you to another church that's 300 because you've shown you can grow a church and now you got to grow another one. No, (laughs) you're at one church in a diocese your whole life. You don't move. And bishops don't go from one diocese to another. The diocese that you are ordained in is the diocese you stay in. Now, there is some of them do move around. So, why then that's why the setting of the canons is to curb unnecessary movement. So, some of that still will happen. But, point being, Nicaea gets known for the creed, and it should be, and for the doctrine of the Trinity, and it should be. Let's not forget the canons because that creates the basis for a lot of practice, codification for a lot of existing practice, and clarity for ongoing practice. I think also the incredible thing looking at this is Christianity at this point, uh, we're moving on almost 300 years old. And there's a lot of agreement here after 300 years. I mean, let's look at our country. Yeah. Look how much we disagree on. It hasn't, it hasn't been that long in the grand scheme of things. So when you look at how much the, the church is able to agree on at this time, there's a lot they're disagreeing on, but there's a lot that they're agreeing on. I think when you look at that, it's, it's really incredible. You can see the hand of the Holy Spirit guiding the, the church uh, 100%. So uh, to, put it, to put it in perspective, you know, five times in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about all the churches, or uses some kind of phrase to reference that, talking about what is the practice and the doctrine. Doctrine and practice go hand in hand. You can't change one without changing the other, right? It's going to happen at some point. He's talking about all the churches. And a generation later, Ignatius will use one word to describe that, and it's Catholic. Catholic churches. They're universal. Yeah, the Catholic Church or the Church Catholic. When Nicaea, when they begin this, they begin the preparations to have the council. 1,800 bishops from around the world are invited. There are two or three bishops from Britain that are there. And Nicaea, by the way, is in modern-day Turkey, like it's in Asia Minor. So you've got three bishops from Britain, you've got bishops from Iran, you've got bishops from India. There are estimated somewhere around 311 to 318 bishops, and a bishop was permitted to bring, if I remember correctly, two priests and up to three deacons. So each bishop could have had five assistants there with him. And that's important because when Alexander, who's the bishop in Alexandria, is dealing with Arius, the priest he's appointed, and, and, and the whole conflict about whether Christ is sort of like God, or is he really God. Athanasius, Athanasius Contramundum, he's against the world in defending the Trinity. Athanasius is there with Alexander, so he's there as, as an assistant. He, he is Alexander's assistant, let me put it that way. So when you get to Nicaea, these guys have all kind of come into their own, and they're, they're really debating this issue. I will say that Some historians look at Nicaea as a negative turning point because they think that now that Christianity has become legal, it's going to lose all of its spiritual potency and become a religion of the state because the emperor gets involved. Okay. That's a a bad way to read. You know, go read the Old Testament and was the king involved in Israel? 
And so if the emperor has become a Christian, shouldn't he be interested in the theological discussions in the churches? Now, saying he's going to make decisions and legislate doctrine is a different matter. But to summon the church together, this is an important time. Part of that making Christianity legal was giving them properties back, giving them things that had been taken, and then you know, giving money towards the building of new structures. So it's, it's a very, very important time. That's crazy to think about that people are like, oh no, Christianity's legal. It's going to be a bad thing for Christianity, yeah. I guess. Like, <laughs> what? what? What are you talking about? Well, they're, they're, some of that critique comes from Christians. Oh no, if only we had stayed, if it, the Christianity had never been made legal and Ta- Constantine hadn't gotten involved because he's, he's a bad guy. And all these bishops are bad guys because bishops aren't in the Bible. Um, well. <laughs> <laughs> but the dudes who wrote the Bible. You know, they were, uh, that's whatever. Yeah, uh, right. (laughs) Right. That's a funny, it's just a funny thought to try to go on. So I guess now we're looking at more, we've understood that what happened at the Council of Nicaea, we have our doctrines that are being made. And then we have that very important thing, the Nicene Creed, which is, if I'm correct saying, because there's the Apostles' Creed, was that created there as well? No. Okay. The Apostles' Creed was the the confession that was used in baptism. Okay. Traditionally, they say, there's twelve lines in the Apostles' Creed, and so one of the traditions that developed was that each one of the apostles contributed to that creed. That is probably a bit of hagiography, meaning a holy a story that's holy because it has great devotional application, not because it's historically true. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. So, but it's called the Apostles' Creed because it goes back very, very, very very early in Christian practice as what people confessed when they were baptized. Okay. So the Nicene Creed, if I can say this, I think this is right, is the basic statement of faith, right? Or would that be more? The Apostles' Creed is basic because that's what you confess at baptism. The Nicene Creed is a bit more elaborated as it pertains to the divinity of Jesus. Okay. So one one of the disputes that came up was that Athanasius and others uh, like him were using the word homoousios. So ousia is a Greek word meaning substance or essence, and homo being the same. Right. So Athanasius and others uh, in, in his camp were saying that Christ, the Word, is homoousios. He's the same substance of the Father, same divinity, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. But he's begotten. He's not made. In, in, in John says it in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, to be with and to be was denote the same but distinct. So how do you codify that language? Because you had others like Arius and those in his camp who said that he was not God. He was the first created by God. And so what happens at the Council of Nicaea is the language is... is and they use Greek language. They use the, of course it's Greek, but they use Greek philosophy to explain the distinction oh, okay. that they have been confessing in the Apostles' Creed and in every time they, they pray and preach and what they've been doing for, as you said, Adam, for a few hundred years. So we see, like in Ignatius, he says Christ is our God. Right? We see this in the, in the writings of the fathers. They acknowledge that. So here's where they, they come down on the language to say, we will confess it this way. It's also in this council because of the emphasis on the divinity of the Word that we will create the questions 
for the debates around the divinity of the Holy Spirit also in the 300s, but later on. Athanasius is involved in that as well, as, long as, as, as well as the Cappadocian Fathers. That's uh, Basil the Great, Gregory of Nazianzus, and Gregory of Nyssa, and their, their contribution to the doctrine of the Trinity and the divinity of the Holy Spirit. And for all those ladies out there who might be listening, uh, Macrina was the sister. She was the elder sister to uh, Basil and Gregory, and she was one of their, she's sort of like the woman in Proverbs who's teaching people wisdom. So she taught her younger brothers okay. some good doctrine, and they helped the church get through those, those choppy waters. We end up with an importance here when it comes to how do you theologize? Right. Basil, Basil the Great, when he writes his book on the Holy Spirit, arguing for the divinity of the Holy Spirit, he's debating a group of people called the Panumantamokians, the spirit fighters. These people said that since the Bible doesn't say the Holy Spirit is God, he therefore is not God. <laughs> if it doesn't say it in the Bible, I don't believe it. <laughs> That's interesting. Well, yeah. I mean, the, and, and then so then all of us, you read that and you think, wait a second, of course the Bible says the Holy Spirit's God. But hold on. Is there a statement in the Bible that says the Holy Spirit is God? No. So, yeah. It's not there. And so the people that say, they'll say, well, I don't believe, and you fill in the blank, because the Bible doesn't say, and they quote something. Well, it may not. But does the Holy Bible, the, does the Bible teach that the Holy Spirit is God? Yes, Basil argues, and here's how we know it. And he goes into an extensive unpacking and exegesis of prepositions and the way prepositions are used in Scripture. He goes into the liturgical practices of the church. He talks about baptism. And he talks about the teaching of the fathers, all of the people before him, those apostolic and anti-Nicene guys. And he sets up a contrast between the way you do theology properly and the way you do it improperly. So if you're looking to proof text, you're not going to believe in the Trinity. Because as we've just said, it's at the Council of Nicaea that they argue and hammer out the language. They wordsmith to say, here's what it is. Everything outside of this is missing the mark. It's crazy to think about because it's like when you get a new a concept like that and you're trying to describe what it is, like you can understand it, but you don't know. I think me and Adam were actually talking about before how like there's this whole new, of course, Bitcoin and everything like that's a big thing right now. Uh, but there's like mm -hmm. this new cryptocurrency where the dude is so intelligent, like, but he literally can't describe it to other people, but he knows exactly how to do it. And he knows how it's working and he made it. But it's like when people are asking, well, how does it work? He's like, I literally can't explain it to you because there's no <laughs> way I haven't, like, I don't have that ability to do that. And it's like, it takes time until other people can get involved. Like, okay, I think we figured this out. And then you can start going off and actually describing that. So I feel like that's kind of what's happening here. Because like you have these things that are taught and that are known, but now you get some verbiage in there. So then like, we know this idea of the Trinity, but we don't really have, a, we don't have the word Trinity yet. And then you have all these other things happening, too. I just think it's interesting to see how that develops and actually gets created. It's interesting because, essentially, some language has to evolve in order to cover a new material. If you look at how many right. things that we have around us, uh, look, 200 years ago, uh, try to explain a computer, try to explain an airplane, try to explain like a, a combustion engine. It just language has not evolved yet. And I think when you start applying this concept to the church at this time, part of them no longer being under persecution 
was important for their culture to develop and therefore language to come out of that church or come and begin to encapsulate this and really explain the different ideas because that's what they're having issues with. I think the culture wasn't truly able to be propagated and built in the way that it was optimal and what was best. You ever heard the phrase something about an iota? Does it make an iota's worth of difference? You know, an iota is like a letter I, small, small letter in Greek. This is, and that's a direct reference to the Council of Nicaea. Is Christ homoousios, or is he homoousios? Is there an I in there? Is there an iota between homo and ousios? Meaning, is he like God, or is he the same as God? And I said he's the same. So in the Greek language, you get a complexity associated with diverse thought patterns and concepts that doesn't exist the same way in Latin. So when they would translate, and we see this in Christian in church history for hundreds of years, when they go to translate one of these Greek documents into Latin, the Latin doesn't carry some of the nuance. And so people will say, of course that's true. Pick the topic, right? Uh, but on the other side, if something's written in Latin and then translated into Greek, it comes across clearly without confusion. Okay. So you'll see later on, Leo the Great, he's a bishop of Rome, he writes his tome on the person of Christ. And that statement is such a wonderfully clear statement that the people actually shouted when it was done, Peter has spoken through Leo. Uh, it was such a clear <laughs> statement. Like there was no way to walk away from that meeting and say, what did that mean? Uh, which is kind of funny when you think about even in the New Testament, right? When when Peter says that some of the things Paul writes about is hard to understand. Right. It just calls for the need of like a council. Like the council on AC was something that was needed so much, especially when you, when you start going even to like Christianity and you start looking at theology. Like the first thing you have to start seeing is that when you read scripture, that mainly we deal with the invisible. Like that's our main thing that we're kind of going through. So then it's like, oh, you're supposed to try to describe something you can't see censored, to, like in that way. Like there's ways you can sense it, but it's automatically a difficulty. And so that's why even something like the Trinity, something that got established, we still have an issue kind of understanding it fully today. Like, have you like, well, at least translate to somebody. Because right. like I heard the argument like, oh, the Trinity is like an egg, you know, three and one. You got the yolk, you got the, you know, all that right, stuff. Right, right. But it's like, it's still not really the same thing because there's nothing else like it. Well, you know, a few several years ago, they had that uh, the oh, what was it called? But they were making fun of all of the bad Trinity Trinity analogies on YouTube, yeah. you know, like shamrocks <laughs> and stuff. Uh, but lot. you know, it, it's uh, when we're dealing with the the scope of language and history, we see with these fathers articulation that's incredibly intentional. There, there's no happenstance about it. And we see them summing up what existed prior to them, uh, the, the anti-Nicene fathers. Right. You know, what, they're, what the language they're using, you know, I think we mentioned it last week. Tertullian is one of the first to use the word Trinitas. They're creating the language to articulate the complex idea. And Greek philosophy was incredible for this. As a matter of fact, when you read the early church fathers before Nicaea, you see them engaging with uh, philosophic thought. I mentioned Origen and Clement of Alexandria last week, of those, some of those anti-Nicene guys. 
they're, they're doing precisely this. They're engaging it. Think about it this way. In the Old Testament, how did God begin preparing the people for the Messiah? How did he begin preparing them? Well, one, he creates them as a distinct nation, and he gives them distinct laws and customs. Right. right. He builds into the law physical actions, types and shadows, ways to, to stand, ways to kill the animals, uh, the amount of money percentage-wise for, for giving. He, he gives them tangible things to embody and foreshadow so that they can understand Christ when he appears. The fathers were quick to recognize this, and then they also recognized a different way that they saw grace at work amongst the Gentiles, and they saw the grace at work amongst the Gentiles in philosophy. So they, you'll, you'll, you can see this when you read about some of, the, some of them. The, the Jews provide the religious system. God provides into Israel this religious system of types and shadows, of forms, uh, like physical material things, okay? Then you get with the Greeks, the articulation component through the complexity of their language. And this doesn't mean that Hebrew is for idiots. It doesn't mean that, right? But you don't see the Greeks engaged in the kind of ritual and, and the monotheism that God gives to Israel. It's different. And then injected in, the, in, in this, in, in a third way, is the, the authority and the sense and the principle of, um, of organization and administration that exists, exists amongst the Latins uh, with the Rome. When these things kind of converge, this is the, the, the very fertile soil, the fullness of time, as you know, Paul talks about in Galatians, that God begins to, to raise the church up to create these complex ideas. We do ourselves a radical disservice when we're teaching Sunday school to kids, and we just teach them stories, and we just teach them with flannel board or even today YouTube clips. If we're not teaching them that the doctrines that we're confessing all the time were articulated by juggernaut theologians who were radically intelligent, who could, you know, quote scripture backwards and forwards, and then give you an exposition of why Socratic method works and doesn't work. We, we do a really bad job uh, at teaching people to increase in their understanding of the faith as they grow up in life. And when you go back and look at the history of the church, it's, it's something to reckon with. You got me with that. That flannel board. That that hit me right in my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got to start with the stories, right? Yeah. We got to provide the raw material. <laughs> but most of us, yeah, we never get beyond the raw material. Like, what does this actually mean? Yeah. And th this, is the, this is what the role of bishops and priests and deacons and, and godly theologians are. This is what it's supposed to be in the church. How do you articulate in every generation God's unchanging truth without manipulating and changing the truth to conform to the spirit of the age. And I think that's something that should be considered as well. Because, like, mainly, like, for kids and stuff like that, when you, if you start growing up with that concept and that idea of, like, how is this existing, it changes your whole perspective. Because it allows you to also look at the world as not just, like, the Bible is completely something dislocated from everything else. Like, no, the Bible existed around this time, or at least, like, Christianity existed around this time with it and then you actually start to see like there's that logic where it's coming from where what's happening and how it's created and it's a helpful advantage for even like world history and having that understanding of what's happening and what's going on yeah even the world around you and how it got to that right. way today scripture didn't fall out of the sky right it's the bible is actually written by people 
and then discerned to be the infallible word of God by people. What? What? Now, so yeah, so when we talk about the infallibility of Scripture, even when we talk about the books that comprise the Scripture, you know, this is probably going to be a shock to some of our readers. You can't go back and read Cyprian or Hippolytus or uh, you pick you pick one of the anti-Nicene fathers and Nicene fathers. You cannot read them and watch them say something about what the Scripture says, and then they quote the Apocrypha. It's as clear as can be. When you get to Athanasius in A.D. 367, all right, 367 A.D., he writes a letter at Easter. It says Easter encyclical because word gets to him that, and he's a bishop for about 45 years. He gets exiled about six times. He's a juggernaut of a, of a theological figure. Well, word gets to him that there are books being read at the celebration of the Eucharist that are not canonical. So he writes a letter, and he has it sent down the Nile, up the Nile, in this sense, uh, to deal with these errors that are happening in the churches, to say, here's the books of the Old Testament, here's the books of the New Testament, and then he says, here are the ecclesiastical books, right? All of which are to be read, but he makes a distinction. The ecclesiastical books, which we call the Apocrypha, are to be read and studied. They required early, uh, well, the, the people preparing to become Christians to read the wisdom of Solomon. You had to read it in preparation for baptism. Huh. They didn't consider it as canonically binding, as canonically authoritative, but they did consider it canonical enough to have a list of them and say, you got to read these. We preserve that in our prayer book. We preserve that in our 39 articles. You get other fathers like Augustine and some who will claim that they're of equal uh, value. And, that, and that's, that's a different topic for the Scripture. But I'm only pointing it out to say the idea that the Bible fell out of the sky in the King James English or 1984 English or 1995 New American Standard English or the New Living Translation English. So all you have to do is have your personal devotional time and read the Scripture and that's what God wants you to do. You don't. Lord, help us all. Who've ever thought that? You know. Anyway, sorry, guys. A little rabbit trail. <laughs> no, it's, it's all good. No, because there needs to be that understanding of, like, you can't just sit alone with your, even with anything that you do in life. Like, you can't just sit there with yourself and think that you have the best decision or you have the best idea. Like, it yeah. needs to be compared in contrast with other people. Yeah. Even if, like, I mean, there's a difference between morals and ethics. But even when you look at ethically, like people will think like if they're in a higher position that, well, I know what I'm doing is best because I have my ethics. Like ethics is designed by the group. Like the people have to decide what is right and wrong. Like there's still that consideration. And when you see this, like the main point is this is like you have to have multiple people looking at this so we can actually have what's going on. And that's why even see in scripture, you'll see Paul and Peter when they're talking about something like circumcision. Like, you need other people to bounce that idea. Like, Do you, you know, need to have that understanding. You're hitting something there that needs to be driven home a little bit a little bit more. I'm going to give you an example. Go for it. We are about to finish Lent. Holy Week starts Sunday. When did the church, and maybe we talked about this at some point, when did the church start celebrating or observing Lent? I know it was early. It's one of the oldest traditions in the church. Right, and they called it the fast. Do you want to take a guess at which council the church mandated the observance of Lent for 40 days. Was it the Council of Nicaea? It was the Council of Nicaea. <laughs> and, and as we've been talking about theologizing, are they making that up? No. This is what's been going on, and now they're going to 
like stamp it to say this must continue this way. Now, if you did not observe the fast, if you did not observe Lent, you're excommunicated. Wow. You That's... are not you cannot be part of the church if you don't maintain the practices and customs of the church. And they knew that the practices and the customs of the church were not equal to infallible scripture. They knew that. Right? I I give you another example. In the 39 articles, the articles clearly state that about infallible scripture and being governed by God's scripture and being required to believe nothing contrary to scripture. They're clear about that. But then the articles also talk about the customs of the church, that if anybody in the church doesn't keep a feast day, keeps his own private fasting periods so that he's creating a, a conflict in the church, he is to be publicly rebuked because he's creating disunity in the body. So should we implement this, and should we give people a warning, or should you just start calling people out from the pulpit? That's the question. <laughs> well, and, so, and, and that's, I mean, you know, we jest seriously, too, at the same yeah. time, because, wait a second, why didn't anybody tell us this? Because we have this really heretical, ungodly, antichrist idea that it's just me and the Holy Spirit, or it's just my congregation and the Holy Spirit. That is, that is so wildly worldly, it's unbelievable. My truth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, stay woke. Be my truth. That, no, and that, that's that's necessary logical conclusion. Yeah, I I think the other thing that really comes out of Nicaea, again in my mind, is not only you see them with it with this united and united approach to this and a group approach to it, um, but you see them dealing with the complex ideas because they have the basics down, like they're they're explaining the basics. So how do you go into arguing over an iota you you understand the basics yeah. and i think you kind of hit on it when we're talking about you know it's a felt board and let me tell you felt boards are great for small children <laughs> so i don't care who you are felt boards are awesome yeah, kids right. love they love throwing them up but the problem is that we pretty much have felt boards up in our adult sunday school classes yeah and we're, yeah. we're still doing the same thing nothing's changed so we're still just t- retelling the stories and so if we're not talking about the deep things and we're not thinking about the deep things actually if we're just covering the basics or we're struggling with the basics you're never going to go to the deep things. And then where do they start disagreeing on? It wasn't on a lot of the basics. That's not where the agreement, it's on some of this deeper stuff where they're, they're arguing over language. The issue I think where we're at today um, is we're now arguing over the basics. Right. Since we haven't gone deeper to talk about these things, we're, here we are on the surface level. There's lack of agreement on the surface level. And I think that's one of the things we can learn from Nicaea and like what is happening with these fathers is they've got the basic down. Like they're all talking about it. They all kind of understand that. They're now kind of, I'm not going to say splitting hairs because this is important stuff, but we're coming down to a letter. Like that, <laughs> yeah. that's pretty, you know. A like, letter with massive, massive significance. Oh, 100%. 100%. Oh, yeah. You're right. You're right. And, and this goes to our, our cavalier disposition in the church so that we trifle with holy things. I mean, I love. Bible study, right? right? And I want to recommend to everybody, you know, read the Bible translation that's best for you is the one that you're going to read. <laughs> okay? <laughs> I just want to put that out there. One of the downturns that's happened is that now because people have multiple stacks of Bibles that they never even open in their homes, they don't understand the reverence of the public reading of Scripture in the church. 
what does the bishop give the newly ordained deacon? What does he give the man he's making a deacon at his ordination? But a copy of the Gospels. Mm-hmm. And he says, take authority to read the Scripture publicly. We, that is a, the reading of Scripture is such a holy, holy thing, and we, even with that, have become cavalier with it. How much more than in the language of things that, well, we don't need that, that's just tradition. Don't you understand? That tradition is the memory of the Holy Spirit in the church. Right. Definitely. Like, even as I go through and I read through Romans, you even see through the first, like, nine chapters where Paul's literally setting up that statement, you know, of, like, what's going on within, like, his experience, at least, from, because I, I think it was written, like, 25 years after his ministry, whatever, after he was in it. But, like, even, like, nature itself isn't enough to save somebody. Like, it's... Right. It's you can see it and you can see there's a God, but then they twist and they turn it to be something else. But then when you see scripture, that's the thing that changes you. That's when you see something happens within you. That's when you have an understanding of like what I'm doing is not right. And it makes you actually because it's logical truth. And that's the thing. Like it's truth. So whenever somebody receives truth like that, it changes them. Mm -hmm. And so there needs to be that understanding of like how does this truth exist? Like how do we get this? Because, like, I know we joked earlier about, like, the whole my truth thing, but, like, people can feel what they want to feel, and that's understandable, but, like, if I sit there and I look at something and I say this is true and it's not, it doesn't make it true. It's not true. What is truth is truth. And you can go into argument of, like, how do you know what's true? How do you know whatever isn't, but... You've hit it, Caleb. That's liturgy. Liturgy is not dead or alive. It's either true or false. Right. And think about the churches who approach worship... And by worship, they don't mean, like, scripturally, worship is liturgy. Liturgio, it's the, it's the organized, ordered worship of the offering of God's people according to his prescription. Today, worship, when the word is used, typically means my heart felt singing that I sincerely believe because God loves me so much. What? <laughs> how, how did that happen? And we'd have to do a whole discussion about that starting in the 1700s uh, with German pietism in the 1800s, 1900s, on down through the past few hundred years. We're not going to do that. But point being, if your gauge for worship and celebration is your feeling, you will theologize on the basis of that feeling, and you'll make up doctrinal considerations on the basis of that. And then when you do pick your Bible up off the coffee table and knock the dust off of it and read it, you will read it and interpret it according to that as opposed to the history of the church. Mm. What's the phrase, Adam? Lex orande, lex credande? That, that's it. Lex orande, lex credendi. There it is. I just <laughs> mix it up. <laughs> the, the law of prayer is the law of belief. Yeah. It just, it's just crazy how, you know, if you don't have that good basis of what to go off of, you're going to start shooting off these other ideas of what you think is truth. Like, but you need that basis. And that's like the Council of Nicaea is such a, Good. It's like such a pivotal part because it starts that process of like we need to get together and we need to decide what is this truth and we need to actually establish these things. And of course, like, uh, what is it? It's like a science in that way. It's like science is basically observing something that happens. And Theology why is the happened. queen of the sciences. Exactly. Where when you start to break it down like that, that's what we're doing here. Yeah. We have logic in what we're doing. And even then, like, we need to see what's happening so we can have an understanding of what's affecting it. Look at how important a common doctrine confessed by the single church is to them. They are not people 
who are saying, you know what, we could just kind of believe what we want to. Or we can make a change here, we can make a change there, we can... They're not doing that. It's very, very important that the church be one, that she has to be one in her speaking, in her worshiping, in her confession. There are variations of customs, but you know, even in the Anglican world, what's supposed to be subsidiarity, meaning a particular diocese has uh, you know, leeway in how that diocese will operate as the bishop instructs it, that, that leeway that the bishop has is not something to violate the Catholic doctrines and practices of the Church, but to moderate what customs are in operation in that Church, often according to the mission and temperament of the people in that geographic area. Like, do you wear a collar? Do you wear a cassock? Do you wear a Hawaiian t-shirt? I mean, you know, those are things that you could call custom, not the books of Scripture, not the Nicene Creed, not the celebration of the Eucharist. Those things are bedrock foundation, but as you said, Adam, what are the things that are fault the most in so many American churches? Not custom, doctrine itself. I just think it's interesting, even when you start to look at that, when we have that understanding of what is truth and we get together. This was a time, like, why was Christianity, why did it become legal now at this point? It's because people were coming together. Like, and that's when the church was making, they're still having that unity. It's because we stand strong together. Like, that's how we get, I think that's the biggest impact for even how the church has an impact on the world. It's because we stand in unity together, and that's the best way to impact it. When we're divided, we can't stand. Even I'd, like, I'd love to see a world council. I'd love to see a council. Li- Not the world too. council of churches, but I'd love to see a um, something where the main body can get together. Um, but even saying that, I mean, how many people, I mean, I know a lot of people. I'm sure you guys do as well. Who would say, oh, well, that's just all part of an end-time scenario for the Antichrist? <laughs> they, they wouldn't know how to function in the first thousand years of Christian history. They, they wouldn't know how to do it. Yeah. Uh, you mean I have to do what the bishop says? You mean I've got to do what that priest says? You mean I've got to, well, um, hmm, <laughs> something to think yeah. about. I think it's just when we start talking about this stuff, it kind of just builds that understanding of like we need to just have our establishment of rules that like people we can't disagree with like when we have the basic statements of faith like as long as you agree with this like that's a good point to start off with because at least you understand basic scripture like you agree with that you know and so i think that's like one of the things like you start making those arguments and those reasonings for like what we need to do to even have unity in that way um because it's something that is necessary for the again like i was saying before to be impactful yeah because I mean, even when we had the what the founding of our nation and talking about how early it is. I remember, I remember celebrating the bicentennial, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not that old. But uh, but like at the same time, like Benjamin Franklin was the one who stood up and said, "If we don't hang together, we'll hang together." Right. Where it's like, and that's where you see that, like if you're not going to stick together as a church and we can't figure out a way to put aside differences, we're going to be in that situation where it's right. you're going to start getting way it's persecution in different ways. Could you imagine what it would be like if in any given area there's one church? What would that even be like? We can't wrap our minds around it. It's crazy. I mean, that, you know, in the missiologist demographics, they say, the guys that study that stuff, by the time you get to the Council of Nicaea, to the legalization of, of Christianity, about 33% of the, of the Roman Empire was Christian. And most wow. of when wow. you when you do the study on that, that is not because they had massive stadium evangelism. They didn't. 
If you wanted to evangelize a stadium in the ancient Roman world, it's because you were being put to death. You were, you were, you were a martyr in front of the arena preaching the gospel. You did not have a praise band. You did not have fog machine. You did not have lasers. And you were not promising people that if they gave to your, your, your ministry, they would receive a gift from God. You were having your throat torn open and your bowels poured out while you declared that Jesus Christ was the only way to God. Very different. And the Christians raised their children so that their children, many of them, stayed in the faith. And then they adopted orphans and raised them in the faith. And then they suffered and died with the sick so that people were won over by their hospitality. That's how they converted the empire. That's powerful. That's, yeah, that's, that's just crazy. And they took it seriously. And so they took this event at Nicaea seriously. And this is where we get our point, where we start establishing all those things and what, we're, what we are designed together as a group, yeah. what we're going to be doing. That's why, I, like I said, like I said earlier, I'm, I always get excited when we start, people start talking about the Council of Nicaea. <laughs> well, I mean, you've got Constantinople, you've got Nicaea too. You know, you, we can go all the way out to the, uh, all seven of them at some point if you'd like to talk about the different issues. But the first, the first four councils are all about, well, I would say all of them, all the councils, you could say this, but they're all about some particular issue as it relates to Jesus. Right. And who he is, how he's both God and man. And then other particular doctrines that stem from that, you know. Today is the Feast of the Annunciation, when Gabriel appeared to Mary. It says March the 25th, in nine months we celebrate Christmas. It was at the Council of Ephesus in 431, so a little over 100 years after Nicaea. The Council of Ephesus said that Mary was the Theotokos. She's the mother of God, because is Jesus fully God or not? He is. And so the council doubled down on the insistence that she be called Theotokos and not just Christotokos, because the people who said she was the, the mother of Christ were using it in such a way to, to make him less than fully divine. So she's Theotokos. And so today you've got whole chunks of Christians, and they'll say, what's the big deal with Mary? And my, my question to them is, why are you so utilitarian? Did God treat her as just a means? To, to make the Word become flesh? Or did Christ, the divine Word, the eternal Son, begotten of the Father, fully, completely, and entirely become human? And if he did, how did he do that? Through his mother. So the councils radically attack, just by reading through them, a lot of the errors that are prevalent today in mindsets that need to be corrected. Nicaea is where it starts. Yeah, and it all it all starts because one guy when in a church decides to go against his bishop and the rest of the church and wants to start arguing for something contrary to what yeah. has been taught. And it's interesting, it all that one person starts all of this. Well, you know, one of the big reasons Arius won so many followers is because his argument made more sense to people than Athanasius's argument did. It was easier for them to understand a a son who was after his father and not like him, not the same as him. He could be like him, but he can't be the same. And so it took this, the tenacity of Athanasius, the, the insistence upon the fathers of the council, you know, and then even Athanasius being exiled, because what happens after the Council of Nicaea, you start to get this 
this whole slew of Aryan emperors. The, the people after mm-hmm. Constantine, yeah. those emperors become Aryan, and they persecute the non-Aryans, right? So even Basil the Great is being pressured by the emperor to, to agree with the Aryan principles. And while Basil's standing there, you know, in physical distress, he's physically sick, he suffered with some, some significant chronic illnesses, you know, while he's pressuring Basel to agree on pain of punishment, Basel refuses, and he says, I can see that you've never met a bishop before. <laughs> <laughs> These guys, you don't trifle with them, you know? They're, yeah. they're, they're some fierce personalities there. Well, I know we're running out of time here, but I will, I'll, I'll say at least one last thing. It's like through all this, and when you actually start looking at the Council of Nicaea, and you start seeing these other councils get together, you see there's, when you have that defining of truth and what's happening, is that truth is calling, and it changes you. And when you receive it, something has to change. You can't ignore it. And like now when you actually, even when you talk about, people will literally follow somebody else because they have a better argument because they're getting closer to the truth. Yeah. And that's what happens. And so now you start to see, this is exactly what we're doing. We're, the whole point is to find truth. Yeah. And that means having an open mindset, but also being aware of all the facts that are happening and being observant of what's going on. So when we look at our modern life today, how can we sit there and say we're looking for truth if we are not looking back to the fathers and we're not looking back to what they're looking at, what they're saying for these other arguments that are happening? Do we believe the Lord? And I think that's the point you're making. When Jesus said that the Spirit would lead us into all truth, is he going to have the Holy Spirit shepherd the entire church, gather together in council, into catastrophic error? No. No, he's not. He's not going to... Does it mean what they're going to say is perfect and infallible? No, that's a different statement. But is, do, can we trust the Lord to actually, truly shepherd his church, that when she gathers together to seek his mind, that he will not communicate that to her? And here's where we go. We go to Nicaea. We go start back. there. Ad, ad fontes. That's right. Back to the sources. <laughs> back to the fountain. <laughs> Well, thanks, everybody, for jumping in today, and we hope the Lord blesses you and shines on you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, may the Lord quicken you and cause His grace to shine upon you. See you next week. See you next week.